Welcome back to Planet Theology. As I'm sure you're well aware, we've taken a little hiatus over the last year, as this, the year of our pandemic, has been somewhat disruptive to our plans. But we're planning on being back and podcasting in the new year, and at the end of this year, 2020, we thought it would be good to put out some of the back catalogue. This episode is one that we recorded primarily around a different context of church leaders falling away, but it's actually broadly relevant, especially in this era of Carl Lentz and Hillsong. So without further ado, onto the pod. Welcome to the Planet Theology Podcast, the show where we keep you plugged into what is happening in all things biblical studies, theology, and Christian history. Because God works through people and God calls us to serve people, we have a conversation here today uh, with our friends Mike Bird, Chris Porter, Scott Harrower, and Elizabeth Webster, who's joining us today. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, today we're going to be talking about St. Augustine, the nature of love, its role in relationships, how we handle our friends who are struggling with faith, and then we're going to move to hear from Chris about his PhD topic on the Joanian writings and how we handle Christian identity. So here we are, guys. It's a lovely day in Melbourne. It is. Um, let's us. kick it off. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Mike, before we get into St. Augustine, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Oh, the things I have been up to, the things that were <laughs> down uh, are now up. Right. I was doing them. Um, and now you've taken over Ridley College. Yes, I have. <laughs> the coup d'etat is complete. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And a massive stumbling block for some, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I believe there's something about Luke 19 as well. well in there. Yes, for those yeah. who don't know, uh, Brian Rosmer is on study leave, so Tim Foster is acting principal, but Tim has gone to Vietnam for a holiday, or possibly to defect to the North Koreans, <laughs> which means I am now acting, acting principle and I've always said if I'm ever in charge of Ridley College I would have a very biblical regime yep. I would be using Luke 1927 as the theme for my tenure yeah uh, which is the uh, the parable of the nobleman who goes away and that verse is as for those who did not want me to run over them bring them before me and slaughter them uh, that'll be the theme of my tenure. So, so you've got like, 10 days mate you've got 10 days to yeah, do it it's probably worth days. noting that when Mike first started at Ridley uh, there was one student who relayed to a senior faculty member that Mike's first lecture was like the opening scene of a World War II documentary. That opening scene no, of Saving, Saving Private, Private Ryan. Ryan. Oh, D-Day, really? Yeah. As, they, as they come in off the, off the carriers, and they, the machine guns mowing those young men down, and there's certain young men screaming, I want my mommy! <laughs> that was, was Mike's first like lecture. Is, is the machine gun fire Mike's jokes? His dad jokes, uh, there just was mowing a, them down. There wasn't any extrapolation of that, but I'm <laughs> guessing perhaps not. It's, yeah. it's the dad jokes, but it's also the focusing in on individual people, on the things that they might have said just slightly wrong. Oh, yes. I see. I've had to talk down many a first-year theology student to tell them that it's okay, he won't kill yeah. you. He'll just consider that you're apostate. <laughs> yeah. So you've had a pastoral ministry to Mike's students, Apparently, Elizabeth? the women, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure every student, every lady student at Ridley has yeah. had a pastoral ministry to the first years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why they haven't really let me teach first years anymore. We need to break them in a bit. But anyway, uh, besides the reign of the Ranger, I mean, yeah. Ranger is Australian for redhead, um, comes from the word orangutan. Yes, so exactly. Ranga is orangutan. Yeah. What's mm. uh, the deal with Augustine? Who who is this Augustine dude, and why is he such a big deal? Well, Augustine was born in three fifty four in North Africa, and he's kind of 
the greatest theologian to come out of that period together with Athanasius. Um, and he's great because he's a pastoral theologian, a church leader, as well as someone who struggled with the will, uh, the emotions, and our desires for God. And because he wrote so much, we can uh, trace the trajectory of a really warm life towards God as it begins in its infancy and he slowly grows and emerges as a figure who serves the church. So that's why Augustine's so valuable. I know, Elizabeth, you read a bunch of Augustine last semester. What did you enjoy about him? Yeah, uh, I really I really enjoyed the focusing in. So Scott, in our third theology unit, just spends a lot of time in Augustine, which yep. is a great way for us to get to know quite a lot about one individual theologian. And I um, hadn't read a lot of Augustine leading into that, so I really enjoyed thinking more about his take on grace and yeah. what that means yeah. for us um, and looking into that. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Let's be real. I'm doing so much at the moment <laughs> that half of last term's theology is gone in my head. Well, I think I remember that one of the things you appreciated was the way that he spoke about God enabling us to do the good things that deep down we really wanted to do but yeah. couldn't do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think the other element was um, he has such a focus on prayer mm. and, and how actually God shapes us through our prayer mm. um, and, and the importance of that in the way that we actually live our lives. And I think that's something that even today we don't do enough of. Mm. And so how do we bring ourselves back into our prayer lives, thinking about that in God's grace to allow us to have that relationship with him in prayer. Yeah, so we spent a whole session thinking about how you could structure your theology around the Lord's Prayer, mm. beginning with who God is and yep. understanding his nature and relations to us yeah. as you work through the mm. prayer. Mm. And that's typical Augustine, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, which is yep. what the, yeah. what's that Latin thing, the law of faith is the law of prayer? Yeah, yeah, lex credendi, yeah. lex yeah. orendi. Yeah, that, that Latin, yeah. Luther Latin thing. stuff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's a warm theologian. Um, so he has psalms all mm. the way through yep. his writings. Um, and God is always the life giver, the powerful one, um, who deeply loves you and wants to draw you mm -hmm. together with others into um, a life of good um, and happiness with him. Mm -hmm. So it's a wise life, and that's what Augustine calls us to do. Now, we've got some uh, people that really are doing a bit of a reading group on yeah. uh, St. Uh, Augustine's on Christian doctrine. I mean, I mean, his Confessions is his most well-known work. Sure. Um, and what I think, I mean, I've read you know, uh, Christian Doctrine years ago, but I remember thinking it was primarily an introduction to hermeneutics combined with a bit of piety. Um, it, it didn't seem to be actually on Christian Doctrine. It was more about, like, the formation of Christian Doctrine. Mm, it's and, how you begin by understanding yourself as someone who participates in relationships of love with others, who is called to understand the Trinity for the benefit of other people. Yeah. How do you move forward? And so then he has a whole section on um, how we have signs in the world that point to deeper realities. Yeah. And what we need to do is see past the brokenness and the partiality of the world into he who is wisdom himself, draw from him, draw from our teachers, and then be people of wisdom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the great idea behind on Christian doctrine. Okay. Yeah. Worth reading about. It, it is, and I think what's really important is that he talks about people pouring love into one another, mm -hmm. and because love is something that isn't exhausted by drawing upon it, like it never runs out, it's not like a cup of coffee, 
um, that love is this fountain, in a sense, from God that he pours into people so that they might pour it into one another. Mm -hmm. And so love is the basis of all theological teaching and understanding, which I think is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it's also linked to what um, O'Donovan says in his ethics about friendship being a species of love. Yeah. So I think for us Aussie students and teachers who tend to be egalitarian, we're sort of friends as well as mm -hmm. teachers and students, what understanding love from Augustine and O'Donovan can do is that it helps us think of the intellectual um, and uh, pastoral task of doing theology as a sharing of love as friends who are in personal relationships with one another under God, mm -hmm. and that that whole thing is oriented towards um, holiness and serving the common good. So I think uh, his understanding of love is really helpful for us. And one of the things I really love about it, with Augustine and love is the nature of how he works it out in human practice. Go on. And mm -hmm. so you have this the, where the loves of the heart, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, there is things that are desirous to the heart, yeah. uh, which in love produces joy, uh, but there's an, a second axis that he, he also maps, which is that there, where the loves of the heart are threatened or uh, may be challenged, there's fear and anger, uh, which produces sadness. Mm -hmm. And so you have these two ways of working that, the love relationships out uh, within uh, actual Christian practice, or not just Christian practice, but worldly practice. Because I think as Australians, we are terrible at really understanding what love is. We talk about love as the butterflies in the stomach, the wishy-washy mm. feelings that we get, mm. but we don't work it out in many ways in our lives. And so thinking about it in terms of desire and fear, I think really helps us to see how that works itself out, say in Christian life, desire for God, uh, but also in the non-Christian life, in certain terms of desiring for idols and money and sex and power and things like that, that our culture desires. When, when they're threatened, we fear the things that threaten them, mm. and we, we emote anger towards those things. And it's, it's actually one of the things that in our current Christian society, in our current Christian circles, uh, has been actually a big issue, because we've set, we set up many of our, uh, I guess, superstar, rock star sort of preachers and writers to say, you know, you desire after God and therefore say you desire after sexual purity. Yeah. Good thing. Yeah. That produces joy. But when that's threatened by our culture, when that's threatened by the world, you need to double down on your fear of impurity. You need to double down on your fear of sexual liberation or your fear of sexual licentiousness. And so you have people who build entire ministries, not on desire of God necessarily, mm. but as a second order, uh, desire of God, but instead fear of the things that stop you from desiring God. Sure. So it's like focusing on mortification rather than sanctification. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and if we focus on mortification, then the danger is that we then have a new desire. We have a new desire in Augustine's terms of the love of mortification, which isn't a love of God. It's a love of moralism, effectively. Yeah. And what Augustine would say is that you've lost sight of where all the smaller uh, including private goods belong. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you've let them um, become things that you fear rather than things that you embrace, like say parenting, you embrace, you order it rightly towards God and towards others, which then becomes a great thing rather than something that you're terrified about, you try to put boundaries about, mm -hmm. and it just becomes a realm of kind of control and a lack of grace sometimes. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
And I think then that comes out in how we've seen several um, high-profile Christians renounce their faith. So what's what's happened with that? Liz, tell us, what's happened recently on this scene? Because... Yeah. So I guess the main one that internationally is Josh Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, who's come out and basically... Over the last few years, he's been coming out and saying, oh, maybe I did a wrong thing. Well, of course you did. You were 21 when you wrote the book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 21-year-olds are full of wisdom. (laughs) And and especially because of the book, even though it's motivated by a desire for God, it's... it's actually out fear. In a fear it's for total fear. Yeah. So my and I'm in that generation that grew up through that, and so I have friends that actually have struggled once they've got married because this book puts so much fear into their lives. Mm. And so yeah. he's kind of realised over the last few years how much of a problem it actually was. Yeah. And then in the last couple of months has come out and basically renounced his faith entirely. And so what was his big idea in our kiss gate dating goodbye? It's purity culture. So it was one of the big things it's, about it's, purity culture. Yes, it's, it's, it's that about courting, not dating. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Which in, a, in so for any Australians who listen yeah, to this podcast, I don't, I th- this, <laughs> this is so confusing in Australian <laughs> culture. I know. Because at, most Australian kids are serial monogamous daters. Yes. You know, you, they date one person and then they break up and yep. there's a period of playing Fortnite for 10 weeks and then they'll <laughs> and go ice cream another consumption. person. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, in, but for our American listeners, this makes a lot of sense where yeah. you, you will date multiple people at the same time. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, they'll be dating multiple, like three or four different people and you're trying to work out whether you actually, like, are you interested in this one or that one or that one? And so it's and then you have the secondary category of exclusive dating. Yes. So we call that razzing or tuning. When, or, or liking. When, yeah, yeah. When, I just like this. Yeah, person. when we're just trying to yeah. sort out who we like. Yeah. Facebook, Facebook has learnt from Australians, man. <laughs> we like everything. So when, when, when Americans say purity culture, is that what we understand as holiness? Like no, in a, in a beyond, good way? I'd say beyond it's... that. Uh, and the, the biggest problem with the purity movement is it was disproportionately affecting men and women. Yeah. Yeah. Women were valued for their purity. Now, boys should be pure, but yeah, you know, boys will be boys. Oh. Kind of thing. So yeah. it, it, was, it, was, it was very much, um, it's typical, like men are valued for courage and women are valued for purity. So it wasn't a yes. holiness movement, like a no. Wesleyan. No, it no, was, no, 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 it was basically girls don't let yourself be deflowered, otherwise your husband will never want you. Oh, and that was kind the, of, uh, at least that was the way that it played out for a lot oh, of teenagers. And also, it also led to yeah. some mixed messages like, you know, sex is very dirty, so only do it with a spouse. Yeah. It was okay. A bit, it was a bit but, kind of but like interestingly, that. it also led to uh, sex is a good thing, yeah. so if you only do it with a spouse, so yes. therefore the outcome of everything is to get married. And okay. so it actually marginalized singleness. Mm. Uh, so yeah. you had this big yeah. issue where in the church today, we don't, we often don't know what to do with singles. Uh, and as a secondary ex- extrapolation, we also don't know what to do. We're trying to encourage um, people with same-sex attraction or other sex attraction towards chastity. Yeah. Uh, and because we have placed so much of an emphasis on marriage as the norm, co- norm and the common good. Yeah. But wait, we do value chastity. But only yes. in marriage. In the, in the purity culture, with purity a view culture to marriage. says... Yeah, chastity yeah. with a view to marriage. Yes. The purity well, culture or, says that marriage is a norm. Or chastity so as a gift and a service to Christ. Well, that's the way it can yeah. be, but that's not what the purity culture yes, is about. Yes, but purity culture basically presented it as chastity until you get married. Yeah. Right? And, and the so norm was, was you will get married. So, yes, and the norm is everyone gets married. So that's where you get so many kids that all got married at 19 and 20. 
Mm. Divorced by 24. Well, yeah. Not all of them, obviously, but some yeah. of them. Yeah. And um, because it was that element of, well, we don't have any self-control. We're people who are dirty and we all want to have sex. <clears throat> yeah. So if we get married, then it's okay and then we can just have sex. Right. And we don't have to worry about not having sex because we're not married. Mm. Because we can't control ourselves. I see. So you didn't actually have the option of being um, single um, as a as a good thing, as a gift, as a service. No, that was basically no, no, that's not, taken away. Not a lot yeah. in there. Yeah. Wow. So, so then you have because this the, rise of, of uh, seminars on Christian singleness, where it's almost an apologetic for those who weren't lucky enough to get married. Where luck is defined as the norm. <laughs> I was called call it the consolation prize. Yeah, the consolation prize, yeah. the single. Yeah. Oh. yeah this, this is this is why I do wonder whether we need to recover a little bit of a little bit of, of asceticism. Totally. Of, of the of the um, of uh, modern life, since everything's sort of like you know the the family centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I wonder if we have a little health of asceticism, because I mean Jesus well, was single, Paul was single. Yeah, I mean think about like the way that uh, Augustine. Tertullian, Perpetua and Felicity and the North African Christians um, dealt with Rome's sexual culture. What they did was they created a space for widows Mm. and for virgins to be understood as legitimate Christians um, who in a sense had skipped all the travels of marriage and had given themselves more fully to God and others and they were the heroes. So it's the opposite, right? Um, We need to recover Well, of course, there's another side on that. The the arguments have also been that celibacy has has contributed to abuse in the Catholic Church. So that's the flip side. I mean, where where does asceticism then um, or celibacy become a bit of a problem that has horrendous consequences? Well, well, I think this is where Augustine actually really helps us, and he's a bit of a prophet for our modern age. Um, Although if you don't want to deep dive into Augustine, deep dive into Lovelace instead, uh, Richard Lovelace, the spiritual dynamics... um, really good uh, extrapolation of Augustine in a more modern context. Mm. Uh, but in, in that nature of desire and fear, yeah. uh, where if we don't have our desires oriented towards God, we have appropriate thumias, um, Paul describes it in as an epithumia, over-desire of the heart. Yeah. Um, and so you end up desiring all these other things, such yeah. as purity, such yeah. as uh, enforced chastity, if mm. you like, Mike. Um, Why do you look at me when you said that? Oh, because you were talking about the Catholic Church. <laughs> But chastity belts for everyone. But yes. the the problem with epithumias is, is that they become fear fear factories, yep. uh, not like that old nineties band, but mm. fear factories in the terms of we create idols in our hearts yeah. by setting these things up as not just uh, godly things to do, but the good that we we should do. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So okay, go on. Which is actually interestingly for now the next generation after the purity culture generation is now fame yeah so their desire after god is not about like so their thing that they're lacking their desire for god is now i desire fame Really? So if yeah. you speak to any kid in a year oh, six they want to be a, they want to be a get- I want to be gamer. famous. I want to be a YouTube yeah, I don't care yeah. how I get about it. I want to be famous. And so that's where actually it flows into the Marty Sampson stuff because... He, Who is Marty Sampson? So he was a he's a Hillsong worship leader, songwriter in Australia. In Australia, Australia yeah. um, and has just recently come out like Josh Harris and kind of half renounced his faith. Though not fully, I don't think. It, it, these things often go in stages, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So his and his issue was fame. Is that his, what you're saying? Well, I 
a little bit. And so, um, actually, the the lead singer of a band called Skillet yeah. mm. has come out in the last day or so and written an article about how the issue is is that we make 20-year-old, and equivalent to Josh Harris as a 21-year-old boy writing a book, yeah. 20-year-old worship leaders the centre of our faith. Mm. Because a lot mm. of what we do in church today is we sing our theology. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we're putting these... 20 to 25 year olds who barely even know what they believe themselves yeah. into this place yeah. of you are f- famous for being a singer a christian, and singer. A christian yeah. singer and the paradigm of faith and the paradigm of faith within that and so they get to a certain point and they can't reconcile their own understanding of god yeah, well, that, 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 jeff bullock went through not a crisis of faith but he went through a big crisis phase mm. in his life i mean he, he he remained in the faith but he, he did go through a thing where i think he, he resigned from hillsong he did and he was like one of the guys who helped make it really big to begin with him yep. and darling check yeah. Uh, and and I, th- I think it was also the celebrity culture. You could also talk about, you know, what was the spiritual and theological and moral formation going on. Mm. So I, I think that's one of the uh, the big issues. Just yeah. just to to clarify, because I don't quite get this, what generates the crisis of faith in in these famous people? So um, both the I can't remember the lead singer's name from Skillet, but him and Mike Frost have both written articles in the last yeah, few days about it. Yeah, from Five Frenzy. Yeah, about how actually what it is is <clears throat> that they've almost got a lack in their teaching. So where Mike Frost has basically come out because part of Maddie Sampson's thing was why are we never talking about suffering? Why are we not talking about sin and how to deal with that? Why are we not talking about various different issues in faith? And Mike Frost is like, well, I talk about it all the time. So do most Christians. So actually the issue is there's a gap in their teaching mm-hmm. and formation. Yeah. At least yeah. that's what it seems. Yeah. That because they've been elevated to this certain point, yeah. they don't necessarily, whether it's not, they're not getting it, they're not hearing it. Yeah. And so they get to this point in faith where they have something that causes a crisis of faith and they don't have that foundation of yeah. teaching yeah. that others would have because mm. they're sort of more sitting in the background. Uh, Wesley recognised this in his early preaching career uh, where Whitfield would be going around uh, converting all these people mm. uh, and then he would be leaving them in the fields, is what Wesley said, uh, converted but undiscipled. Mm. Uh, yeah. There's no sense of uh, Christian maturity and admittedly this is where the holiness movement comes from. but. What Wesley did was he set about sending people into bands mm. and classes yeah, uh, where people yeah. would gather together to be discipled, uh, to be to have the desires of their heart change towards God rather than change, rather than point mm. towards themselves. Uh, and Wesley actually said that a sleepy Christian, once awakened the first time, once they are back to back to sleep again. It's seven times harder to awaken the mm. second time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's something that is actually quite destructive yeah. about getting a taste of the gospel, uh, and then just enough to uh, be inoculated just, again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But also, a lot of sects came out of that revivalist yeah. phase yeah. Mm. where they weren't followed up properly. Yeah. They got um, kind of kooky ideas, enjoyed the power, and they started off different. Yeah. Mm. And and this is where I think Augustine, it comes back to Augustine's idea of love as yeah. the centre of being. We rationalists in our post enlightenment culture go, oh, it's all about the brain, or I can think my way into heaven. That's not true. It's cognitive ascent is what converts me. It's yeah. it's not true at all. We need to have yeah. some understanding 
but the heart is really what lies at the center of our being yeah and it's what the heart desires the bo- the body does and the mind rationalizes mm. Mm. Now, but also consider josh harris's thing he he was well known for this famous book that was very big within Christian subculture. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then he reaches the point where he realised not only was it wrong, it was harmful. Mm. And he talks about that. And he has to see himself as the author and architect wow. yeah. of other people's misery. That would yeah. be awful. Yeah. So think about think about that. I mean, you know, I mean, <clears throat> you could call it the equivalent of you know the guy it was at Oppenheimer who designed the A bomb. Yeah. It's yeah. like, wow, cool, we yeah. split the atom. Mm. It's like, whoa, so that's what happens when you do it over Nagasaki. And and oh, man, what the hell have I done? Oppenheimer's reflection on the on the A bomb become death. Become death. Yeah. yeah. So the destroyer of yep. worlds. Yeah. And death. so it's it's no wonder you see Josh Harris now walking around an LGBT. Pride Festival, yeah, uh, because this is, uh, is. I think this is almost his way of penance. Yeah. Mm. Well, and it doesn't um, have to be this way. I know that's that's the because tragedy. as a horror maker, you can be brought back. Yeah. Yeah. You can be shown God's face. That's right. And then even called into ministry to show God's kindness to others. Well, mm. and, and again on Augustine, because I think Augustine is such a, so good at this. Mm. Uh, that nature of love being properly ordered yeah. brings about that. Uh, change brings healing yeah. that's the right. thing bring healing it, yeah. the wound becomes healed in us remember elizabeth we did this yeah. on the wound yeah and so what god does is it, he actually offers us healing new wise life with others that's the that's what the gospel is about mm-hmm. it's healing renewal repair it's wonderful okay. I, I think so, so one of the things that is particularly dangerous with with the way that we construct our, our modern uh, christian culture mm. is actually that we silo ourselves off. So Josh Harris was uh, really attractive to a certain subset of the population, of the Christian population. I bet if we went down the road to uh, one of the, the other theological colleges that uh, nearby, there probably wouldn't be the same attraction mm. in, in the same way. Certain yeah. other authors would be upheld as pivotal for those groups. And one of the things that I think is actually quite dangerous about not just modern Christian culture, but modern culture in general is that we are very good at siloing ourselves off into small groups which uh, have inward relationships uh, and inwardly focused and we therefore demonize the other. Uh, Just like Augustine, we desire each other, Mm. uh, but we fear what threatens our community. And so this is actually what I did my thesis on. I was going to say, it sounds like sociology might have some relevance to apostasy and sectarian (laughs) religious groups. (laughs) That would make a very good PhD thesis. Christopher, do you know anything about sociology and maybe the Johannine corpus where, you know, there's groups who kind of, you know, the docetists and the... Um, well, actually, not... Mike, I don't think there's particularly much to do with docetism in, in the Ahanan Corpus. But tell us uh, about shock and horror. Tell us about how identity but, plays But uh, I think, actually, one of the things is that uh, the way that we construct identity, we're not individuals constructing identity on our own, in our own little in project. We're social beings. Yep. We form into groups and bands together to be able to, to work out our identity. And so I actually looked at this in uh, the Ahanan Corpus, uh, so the Gospel of John, one, two, three, John. I left out Revelation because, whoa, there's a big, big kettle of fish there. Yeah, otherwise. sure. Yeah. Uh, but the, there's a nature of of what is happening within those uh, that material within the gospel, especially is you have uh, a social group which is seeking to define itself in relationship to other uh, social groups. So yeah. uh, the disciples are called together, and in the first few chapters of John, you have a potted history of Israel, effectively. Um, and the disciples are called together to be this sort of remnant of Israel 
uh, within the story and they, they potter through as Jesus has all these interactions with yeah. other people which define yeah. not just the boundaries of the social group but the core mm. uh, what are the norms of the social group so I use social identity theory to look at this uh, my background is as a social sociocognitive psychologist um, and the social identity theory is a really great way of looking at the, not just how social groups interact but why they interact in the way that they so do. what were the norms for that group so many of the norms for the group are actually picking up on jewish norms go on uh, so we have the norms of uh, the commandments uh, john presumes that his audience know the first and the second commandment mm -hmm. uh, love god love your neighbor and then he introduces a third commandment love one another mm -hmm. this formation of community uh, many of the other norms are found in uh, various uh, festival or temple uh, enactments, so the Passover, Festival of Lights, um, the... And they become norms for the new Christian group. They become norms in Jesus for the new Christian group. So where where do you go to find uh, ritual purity and, and uh, sanctification, essentially, cleansing. Mm -hmm. and yeah. cleansing? Where you find it in Christ. Okay. Uh, where do you go to find the, the great banquet, the eschatological banquet? Well, in John 2, we see Jesus providing this wonderful eschatological banquet of wine for the people. In John 6, you see the, the pre presentation of manna, effectively bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread who's come down from heaven. Uh, a lot of the Jewish narrative of the key points, the high points in the festival calendar, uh, the things that were done in the temple, are all actually now done in Christ in the fourth gospel. Mm -hmm. And so... For a community that's struggling with what's happened in 70 CE with the destruction of the temple under Titus, well, it says to, to a broader group, actually, we find all that in Christ. And in relations to one another. In relationship to one another. Yeah. But that's where the tension lies, because as you get all the problems of post-70 um, Judaism and uh, all the breakdowns and all the trauma that happened, you do get some groups uh, who persons who do apostatize. That's reflected yeah. in, in John six, mm. where Jesus, you know, gives that you know, mm. that, that discourse oh, yeah, about, that's yeah. awesome. and then then and uh, you know, unless you eat my flesh, yeah, you drink, drink my blood. blood. And yeah. some people the go away. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and Jesus says to Peter, "Are you going to go away too?" And he says, "Well, I mean, what, to whom shall we go?" Yeah, and, exactly. then, and then yeah. in the Johannine letters, chapter two, it's all about the successionists, those who have left off. For, for whatever reason, so yeah. even with so how how does this social identity mm. thing relate to that issue of apostasy? Well, I, I think in the Johannine letters it, it's quite stark because you notice in the Johannine letters you get very minimal description of who is out. Mm. You you only know who is out by the fact that they're not in, mm. uh, yeah. which is actually I think how we describe our our modern culture. You have this: Are you out of the purity movement? Well, we don't know whether you're out or not, but we just know that you're not in. And the way that we do that in our modern world is you tweet about it. You say, mm. I'm no longer in your movement. But yeah. the interesting part of both Josh Harris and Marty Sampson is that they both went, now, let me take a little bit of that group that I was part of. Be kind to one another. Be good to each other. Yeah. What is realistically the third commandment, or the second and third commandment, love neighbor and love, each, love one another. I'm going to ditch the loving God part. Mm. I'm going to ditch yeah. the first part of that. I'm just going to love neighbor and love one another mm. and do that as this lone ranger sort of off to one side. Uh, but interestingly, they call others to do the same thing. And so you get a new group of people forming a new social identity around that person. But the basic orientation to love God isn't what directs the love yeah, of neighbor exactly, yeah. and the yeah. other. No, but so it, it's but it, on a completely different uh, point yeah, on the compass. Yeah. Interestingly, Mike, you brought up uh, John 6. 
where you have the, some of the disciples leave mm-hmm. uh, because they, they say this is a hard mm-hmm. teaching. And Simon Peter says, where can, I, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Mm-hmm. But Simon Peter actually becomes this model for someone who does leave and comes back. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you have in the upper room, uh, Simon Peter, who just does not get the washing of feet <laughs> as someone who has really ticklish feet and has grown up in a charismatic movement. I don't get the washing of feet either. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't understand that this is part of what it means to love one another. Mm. And then you get him popping up again in John 18, uh, around the fire, and he denies Jesus three times. And then you have the reinstatement in John 21 on the beach. Mm. Of, and there's this position where you have a, this person who is a liminal group member. He's on the border. Is he in? Is he out? And the, the fourth gospel actually traces the, his narrative through. Mm. Okay. okay, we've had a great episode. We've talked about Augustine on Christian doctrine, apostasy, social identity in the fourth gospel, and, and how that can feed into you know being in, being out, the issues of apostasy. Uh, Elizabeth, final thoughts from you. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about this whole conversation is it's all been shaped around the same thing, really, which is love and that desire and fear Mm. so we have a desire to be in community we fear not being in community and we have we're shaped around this love of god as christian people and so i think if we bring it back into augustine we have this amazing space where we can show people the love of god through prayer through grace through all of those things and i think if we build that in our teaching and in the way that we shape our faith it actually helps bring people into that social identity mm. and, and so that we don't have to worry about the people walking away from faith unaware of things that actually we think that they probably should know. Or there'd be less reasons for them to walk away There's because they're more reasons. equipped. So a bit yep. more Augustine, a bit more asceticism yeah. in our Christian yeah, discipleship good. and teaching. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And, and dare I say it, perhaps uh, a bit more Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, always. Um, <laughs> there, there, it's really interesting, actually, our culture picks up on the, the relationships that actually happen within the three commands, love God, love neighbor, love mm. one another. Yeah. Uh, and you can see this in certain characters in, in the MCU as they drop off one of those, those traits. Uh, so if you loving neighbor, you're all on about the mission, and if you're all on about the greater good, loving God, uh, but you, you forget about loving one another, you become like Tony Stark, your mm. cynical Iron Man, Lone Ranger, off on your own, doing your own thing, and you burn out. And damage others. And damage others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but on the flip side, if you're all about loving neighbor and all about loving one another, but yeah. you've forgotten about the greater good, forgotten about the, the, the bigger picture. And you become well, Cap. We, no, no, you become more like Black Widow. You know, in, Interesting. In, in the, uh, the start of... Um, Endgame, she's seen there, trying to juggle all of the missions that the um, Avengers are on mm. and looking completely despondent about everything. Uh, but, but Cap is all on, on about the bigger picture. Uh, he's all on, on about the bigger picture. He's all on about loving one another. Mm. But the mission can, can come and go. Mm. It's about the core of the team. Yep. Uh, and you become Cap just off in that little corner. And what, what the MCU says is that we can't do any of these things alone. Uh, we, we can't actually do any of that by ourselves. And it's only together that you you have the Avengers assembled. With yeah. a proper orientation as well. And, yeah, well, yeah. You, so you all need a proper orientation. Yeah. 
And actually, proper orientation is salvation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely so they're, they're right? It's essentially salvation from Thanos. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. All right, so let's end uh, with a line from Augustine at the end of The City of God. He says, and I think this is very appropriate to our group, let those who think that we have said too much or too little um, or think that we have said way too much, forgive us. Let those uh, that think that we have said just enough join us in giving thanks to God. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Planet Theology. Planet Theology is Mike Bird, Scott Harrower, and me, Chris Porter. Our theme music is Finger Lickin' by Harriet Harbingers. We hope you've had a great time. And if you've enjoyed what you've been listening to, please like us and rate us on your local podcast app. See you next time.